Hi, Steve. Welcome. Today, I'm joined by Tom Nash. He has a YouTube channel on finance and investing. I've been looking forward to talk to Tom for a while. He's been covering Tesla, Palantir, and the stock market. Uh, Tom, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. I've been looking forward to get a chance to speak with you, and I think you have some of the best Tesla-related content uh, on the planet. Uh, when I look at the, like my top three Tesla channels on on this platform is you, Rob, and Steven. And I use them for different purposes. If I want to get a, a, a good confirmation bias, I'll go for a Steven video. He always makes me feel good. Uh-huh. Uh, if I need some financial modeling, like good dry financial modeling, I'll look at Rob's stuff. And if I need some uh, inspiration into a, kind of a visionary outlook of where things are headed, I always go to your channel because... I don't know if you notice this, but you have this talent of kind of seeing things play out in advance. And I think that's why a lot of people like your stuff. Awesome, man. Yeah. So uh, actually, for those who don't know, I did a two hour podcast on uh, Tom and Justin O's podcast. I'll link it in the video description. Description. We talked about um, Tesla. I was trying to convince uh, Justin O from Sense Invest to, to invest in Tesla. <laughs> I'm going to have him on my uh, channel next Monday, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, so Tom, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm dying to ask your uh, opinion on the market. So the markets are going crazy this year, very, very volatile. Um, lots of stocks are down. What's going on right now? Can you help make sense of the stock market? Well, first of all, today is a very extraordinary day. So uh, you, it, it's quite an unusual day. But if you look at it from a more macroeconomic perspective or kind of when in doubt, zoom out, if you look at what the trend is, um, this isn't the bounce back uh, long term. I think that the, the growth sector will experience because what's happening right now, and I think uh, it's quite easy to see if you look at it from like when you have a physician that trying to break bad news to a patient, there's always like, you know, the five stages of of, uh, of, of kind of grief or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the market is going through these five stages. So uh, the party is pretty much over. And uh, obviously it's going to weed out a lot of the people who were kind of uh, visiting the stock market out because the money isn't so easy. The reason it's over because um, this market was very bullish for a long time because of uh, uh, money supply going basically berserk. Uh, look at the M2 numbers, and we're at ins- like all-time highs. Uh, uh, and so basically, uh, people call it the money printer. Just let's use it in proper terms. So money supply combined with the perfect storm, which is the supply chain shortages that got created because of COVID that exposed an already outdated archaic distribution system in the U.S. and in Europe, actually. So that created a lot of pressure because, you know, eventually uh, when you have a lot of money and not a lot of goods, kind of, you know, microeconomics one-on-one, you have price increases and now the Fed has to respond. The Fed natural reaction, like a knee-jerk reaction is to raise interest rates. And then that automatically devalues any company in the world because uh, the standard way to value companies, as we spoke yesterday, is through a DCF model. And in the DCF model, probably the most influential element of them all, we, you saw we can play with the R&D expenses, with the EBITDA, we can with revenues. But if you change just 1% of the cost of capital, it, cha- it changes the complete structure of your DCF. And uh, a, the cost of capital is essentially, a huge component of it is the interest rate in the market. So once you raise interest rates, you basically raise the discount rate of uh, bringing to present value future cash flow. So Every company will lose certain value when that happens, but 
imagine a company that has a lot of upside in the future, but really, really not nothing today. Those sort of companies really would be hit the worst because they're really top heavy in five, six, seven years. And they will be the one that will feel the burden much heavier than other companies. And that's why you see growth stocks selling off. Now, my point in my videos, and I know you watch my channel and I'm honored. Thank you so much. Uh, is that I think that the market, even though people would like to think that, is still not pricing in the gravity of the situation. I think that the market still don't really account for the fact that we cannot stop inflation with a 1.5 or 1.6, 1.75, 2% interest rate. It cannot be done. There's a very famous uh, uh, gentleman, his name is John Taylor, and he's developed the rule, which was quite complicated, but to keep it very, very simplified, essentially, if you're trying to look at what would be the proper interest rate for, for halting inflation, is it's a it's a very simplified way of looking at it, but like 1.5x. So if you have like a 5% inflation, you need 7.5% interest rates and whatnot. So that needs to happen, uh, but there's a gap between what needs to be done and what the public will accept um, and there's a lot of excuses. Number one, people say, well, it's transitory. Still, people say that, even though Jerome Powell himself backpedaled from that. Or they'll tell you, well, this is just a supply chain issue. One, we, once we flood the market with more goods, it's going to drive the prices down, which it will. But it doesn't solve the fact that we printed $5.5 trillion in the past 18 months. There's still this money still in the system. So just solving the supply chain issues, it's it's necessary. I mean, if you don't solve supply chain issues, and the, the 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 money supply problem is still half the solution. But it, so basically, uh, people have excuses why the Fed will not raise interest. Certain people will tell you, well, they cannot because the U.S. debt is so ginormous that basically raising interest rates is going to bankrupt the U.S. economy, which it won't. But it it will cause massive inflationary pressures because if you have to pay hundreds of billions to service, to service debt, you basically need to print more money, which is basically you're going back to square one. But there's a solution for that. You can outgrow um, the GDP. If the GDP outgrows your inflation, then you can you can have tax revenue balance. There's solutions to this. But in any case, even though I don't think we're going to the 1980 Paul Volcker, 15, 17, 18% interest, that's not going to happen. We're definitely not going to stay at four hikes this year and just like, you know, 2% next year, we're going much more aggressive. And there's a gap between what needs to be done and what people accept. And that gap is slowly closing. And as it is closing, the, obviously the market is very smart. So there's the push downwards of the prices. And and you'll have euphoric days like today when things bounce. But if, if we look at it from a, from a long-term perspective, this is going to keep happening until the Fed comes out and admits like they did with transitory, hey, we were not correct on this. We need more interest rate hikes. We need much more aggressive uh, monetary policy. We need to be much more hawkish than this. Until they come out and say that, this is going to keep happening because once they say it, it's almost cathartic. Then it will be priced in. And from that point on, if you're interested in growth stocks, that would be a really good time to pick up um, what you like and, and did research on at a reasonable price. So that's my kind of way of looking at the market. On the Got it. Long answer. Sorry. Long answer yeah. to a short question. I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, so so when when do you think uh, the the correction in growth stocks is going to be over? Do, do do you have an idea of like when you think the bottom will will come for these growth stocks? I know I know what's the trigger event for that, but I don't know when it's going to happen. So the trigger event is that announcement. Once it's made final, 
that's the moment where it's got to bottom out. And I don't think it's going to bottom out and just bounce back like we had in COVID. You remember how it fell and there's immediately like a V-shape, like, boom, it's going to take a good few months. If you, if I was a betting man, probably Q2, in between the seam in between Q1 and Q2 this year, they'll have to say, hey, this is not enough. Like four hikes this year is just not going to cut it. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that, uh, so I, I want to be clear on this. Interest rates on their own, if you just raise interest rates, that's not going to stop inflation. We actually tried this. If you go back to the 70s, I, I know you like history and I like history. In the 70s, we tried that, just raising interest rates, and it failed miserably. The only time it worked is in the 80s when Volcker actually did the interest rate spikes, but we managed to generate GDP growth. Because right now the U.S. debt is about 100, at 100% of GDP. We have to outgrow the debt to be able to service at a higher interest. There's other solutions, by the way, which I spoke about in my video. I don't know if you caught this. I, I said that there's a really interesting solution that was suggested by a professor. I believe uh, he used to be uh, in the uh, economics professor in the University of Chicago, which is the best economic school in the world, in my opinion. Um, and I think now he's in Stanford. I keep forgetting his name. But he talked about a theory, which I really like. He basically said, well, what we can do is we, uh, we can detach the U.S., interest rate sensitivity from the U.S. debt because the U.S. has been systematically um, basically creating cheap variable interest short-term debt because it's, you know, it's like a house loan. It's cheaper if you take a variable rate, right? We can buy long-term 30-year, we can create 30-year bonds and pay instead of whatever it is, like 0.5% interest, we can pay 2% interest. And it's going to cost us like 350 billion to convert from 0.5 to 2%, but it's going to be fixed. So, and then we're completely uh, detached from any concerns of whatever interest rates are will be. But even that solution requires generation of 350 billion dollars in extra GDP to pay for. Otherwise, we're just going to print more money and you know go back to this vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so if you think we're not at the bottom yet for growth stocks, what's your strategy? Are you holding a lot of cash? Are you waiting? Or are you still buying? Like, what's your take? It's a really good question. I love that question. So it depends on which stock. So mm-hmm. if I think if so, for me, like you had your conviction in before anybody else, to your credit, I don't know a lot of people who did it, like the Tesla conviction almost 10 years ago. I only know one more guy who did it and uh, and it paid off really nicely. So I only know two people in the entire universe that went so early at, at this point. So for me, I feel very similarly about Palantir. That's not a secret. So that kind of stock, I'm, I have no uh, planning for that stock. I just keep adding to my position as much as I can because for me, I look at it from this perspective, whether the entry point for me is 15 or 16 or 25 or 35 or 45, if my theory is correct, which it may not be, but if it is correct, it won't matter. I, I, who gives a shit, right? Sorry about, sorry about language. You can bleep that later. <laughs> I'm used to on my channel to, to say that, but I mean, nobody cares. If, if, it's, if it's a quasi-Tesla story, if it is, I don't know, then the entry point is completely irrelevant. You buy as much as you can. It's a great company and whatnot. For stocks, which I think that I'm trying to go a little bit more short term, like a year or two, then the entry point actually matters. And... At that point, uh, if it's a growth stock, which means it's not a classic, uh, slow-growing, high cash flow business, uh, I'm probably going to wait a little bit longer. I'm going to I'm going to sit on my cash and not buy any. So currently, at this point, uh, for the past 
I want to say past like two months, I've only been buying Tesla and Palantir. Mm. Everything else is just on hold. What's your uh, portfolio look like? Do you, do, can you break it down in percent? Like, you know, what's your top positions, what percent and things like that? Yeah. So basically, uh, I have a big chunk of Palantir. Uh, it's now nearing to about 40 something percent of my portfolio. Wow. Uh, that's been building up more and more over the past few months as the price came down. So I, I had to make a decision. I, in fact, I had to slow myself down a little bit because if I wouldn't have, we were talking like about 60% at this point. So it gotten really high because of the drop in the price and I was buying just a lot of it. Um, I, I have another about 10% in Tesla, uh, another uh, 10% in Google, which are my top three stocks. And I feel like they have a good balance of, uh, they're all, like for me, Palantir is the growth story which with high uncertainty and Tesla and Google, uh, very different than Palantir. I think those are value stocks with a massive amount of growth, which I think like Tesla is misunderstood in this. They, they People classify it as a growth story. Tesla is a 100% value stock with an insane amount of growth. Same as Google. And the rest is just, I put it in the S&P 500. I don't, I don't play around. I have a bunch of little small positions, but I don't count them. You know, I have 10,000 here, 15,000 there, but I mean, those are like tiny positions. So like I have a very straightforward, simple portfolio. Yeah. So, uh, I, I, I think uh, like if you listen to Warren Buffett, and again, everybody likes to quote Warren Buffett. I have this uh, screensaver on my computer. I'm not going to put it up right now. The screensaver like has this picture and there's this quote and the quote says, I never said any of this bleep. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> there's these quotes, that, but the one quote I actually heard him say is that like, you don't really need to diversify if you have high conviction about the stuff you're, you're gaga about. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, 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 I like information. And uh, so, and, and I like data. That's why I like Palantir. That's why I like Google. And I think if you like renewable energy, AI, data, and uh, whatever it is the automotive industry is becoming, uh, I, I think Tesla is about to put everybody out of business. So those three are like my top highest conviction stocks. They're, Got it. Um, they're amazing. Yeah. Um, so back on the interest rate question, I'm curious. Um, how high do you think interest rates will get? Let's say not just in 2022, but let's say going out 2023. Um, yeah. What's your, do you have any expectations? It depends on what we can do with the GDP. The, mm -hmm. the GDP and the ability of the, of the, of the US to roll over um, cheap short-term debt to long-term debt will determine how fast they can raise high, uh, the interest rates. Um, I think I did a calculation. Uh, so, Every 1% of extra interest rate will cost the U.S. Uh, $270 or $260 billion of servicing their debt. So it's a very expensive process to raise interest rates. Now, right now, the inflation rate, as far as the core price uh, index, which is a very skewed way to measure inflation, I think it, it's, it represents about 60% of how bad things are. So the CPI tells us we're at 7% inflation right now. Yeah. I think realistically it might be higher um, because it doesn't, like the CPI doesn't include the stock market and it doesn't include real estate prices as far as like ownership. It includes rents, but like if you look at the stock market and the real estate market, those are not included in CPI. So let's yeah. say it's 7%. So 7%, like if you just take the Taylor rule straightforward, you're looking at anywhere from 12 to 14% interest rate. That's not, never going to happen. There's no chance in hell. Sure. Um, yeah, that's like, that's La La Land. Ideally, that's what yeah. should have happened to stop this. 
but it's not. I think that we're probably going to see in the next couple of years as a, a, a realization of we need to push this forward, and it's going to be anywhere between two percent and four, four and a half, five percent interest in the next two to three years. That's the bare minimum they absolutely have to do to keep the patient alive. Uh-huh. It's not okay. going to solve the problem, but I think that's the bare minimum. That will require enormous efforts in solving some of the toughest supply chain issues the U.S. has to solve in order to increase supply. We have a massive problem. Like uh, you're in the West Coast, you you obviously know yeah. this. So everything that comes into the U.S. from China goes through either Long Beach or L.A. Two very old points of entry that are creating a bottleneck. And even after the goods are there, you have a massive problem. The trucking industry is is in, in shambles. The COVID is basically keeping people at home. We have a massive container problem because things are coming from China and not going back to China. So there's a huge cluster freak that needs to be solved mm-hmm. in addition to this interest rates. Mm-hmm. And that's only like 30% of the problem. We also yeah. have to encourage GDP growth, which means in- encourage uh, uh, um, more productivity or from the economy. And that unfortunately can only be done if you actually, and a lot of people give me heat for this, if you reduce taxes. So you have to reduce the tax rate to encourage that massive GDP growth. But mm-hmm. politically speaking, it's going to be a very challenging move to do for any government, especially mm-hmm. this administration will have a tough time with that. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I want to give some counter arguments to this. Hopefully we'll get some discussion going. So um, interest rates hikes, a lot of people will say that, hey, the GDP just isn't growing that much for most developed countries. Like you, look at Europe, like they're barely growing. Look at Japan, barely growing. China's deep GDP is going down. U.S. over the past couple of decades, you know, hasn't been growing much. Um, there's a ton of deflationary pressures, right, with technology bringing yep. down the cost of goods, manufacturing overseas. So, so you know, you've got this this big headwind of low GDP growth historically, if you raise interest rates to two to 4%, then you're gonna knock much of the developed world into recession. They just can't handle that type of yep. high interest rates. Therefore, we have a long, a midterm and a long-term low interest rate environment that's gonna persist. Um, yeah, what's, what, what's your argument kind of against that? So uh, first of all, there's this, I completely agree with you that technology is going to drive deflationary pressures. Uh, but the thing is, you have to look at the timing of, of when it's going to happen. And that's kind of, I call it the Kathy Wood argument. I completely agree with her and you about this. But uh, deflationary pressures that come from technology usually are a little bit slower to move through the pipeline than inflationary pressures that are caused from a lack of supply or lack of or over demand which is basically money supply or supply chain issues. So we're probably going to feel the effect of like Uber, for example, it's a crack, crack, you know, it's it's killing industries, right? So Teladoc is going to kill industries. A lot of these in, uh, companies will, will cannibalize uh, archaic businesses and they're going to put them out of business and basically cause deflation that's going to stop. I completely agree. But I think that is going to take years. I don't know exactly how much, a couple of years, two, three, four, five years, whatever. Things are speeding up, right? If you look back at, you know, how much time it took uh, the U.S. to, 25% of the U.S. to adopt electricity, right? It took, uh, I don't know, like a few decades, right? So now things are moving much, much faster. Like, uh, I don't remember the metrics, but uh, so we're probably looking at a few years, anywhere from two to three to four years for that to take effect. Thing is that current inflation rate growth uh, is quite... um, 
quite alarming. So we people forget, but like Dave, you remember like we had problem raising inflation just a couple of years ago. The Fed was sure. battling the opposite problem. We had too low inflation and we couldn't we could we couldn't get it up. And now we're looking at, at a seven percent. That's uh, that's like a, I don't remember how much we had last year. Like we had like what before, before the pandemic? I think two percent or whatever. I don't know. So that's a massive, massive shift. I think that the um, economic recession that's going to result in raising interest rates is inevitable, and I think it's it's very unfortunate. But the alternative of not putting the system through this natural selection process and keep artificially alive inefficient systems is unfortunately what happened in Russia. When I was a kid, I saw that happen in Russia. And you can see a preview of what it's going to look like in Turkey right now. I don't know if you follow what's going on in Turkey. Yeah, so the, so a, a out of control inflation is much worse than the, than the recession. Yeah. Because what essentially, I think it's, I've seen it happen, it, it crumbles societies. When money is devalued, then every, the, the societal order just falls apart. Now, it hasn't happened in Turkey yet, but you can already see uh, the president there is about to lose his, his position. Uh, mm-hmm. So, But in Russia, I've seen people sell their socks on the street for meals. So mm-hmm. in the 90s. Sure. So, so for me, uh, uh, I don't, I don't want to say hyperinflation because the definition yeah. of hyperinflation is like 50%. I don't know if you're going to see 50%. But it, like, like, a seven, like a U.S. 70s type inflation scares me more than the recession. Mm-hmm. I think recession, a healthy one that's going to create the selection process and weed out the good companies from the bad mm-hmm. it, and stopping inflation is kind of the necessary evil uh, of this to happen. I sound okay. like one of those villains in the Bond movie, you know? <laughs> you know, like this needs to happen. This is good for humanity. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Let's, I, I want to push back a little bit more on this. So if a big part of inflation is driven by, let's say, money supply injected into the system, say, you know, trillions, five trillion, whatever, or more. Um, 5.5 uh, yeah. over the past 18 months. Sure, 5.5. Let's say, hypothetically, can't the Fed just pull back that that money, do quantitative qu- tightening, right? They did. Release, or they haven't yet, right? Well, In they, terms they of, did already. You'd be surprised. I mean, they're they're lowering their the amount of, you know, bond purchases, right? And they're going to end pretty soon. But in terms of the balance sheet that the Fed holds, can't they just, you know, let, uh, shrink that balance sheet and won't that have the opposite effect in terms of demand and it will shrink demand, mm-hmm. therefore shrinking inflation. So why do we need even these aggressive interest rate hikes? So it's a really good question. And for sure it does. Uh, that's a, that's a necessary step that has to happen. If you don't slow, it's like, imagine like uh, you have a fire and somebody is just standing and pouring liquid, lighter liquid on the fire until we stop that that's we're not going to be able to put a fire so that's kind of an, a step we cannot go without we have to s- stop the, the money printer whatever we call it right so the way if you look at the m2 chart you'll see that uh, we've never i think had a 15 percent month increase year over year I, th- I don't at least not in the in the last few decades and then throughout the pandemic we went up to like 23 27 35 and, and whatnot and now for the past six months to their credit, we're down to 13% per month like clockwork. So they're really reduced. So we're back on this flat line we were before the pandemic. So as far as you know, the massive push of money into the system, that doesn't happen anymore. And as you mentioned uh, earlier, 
they are slowing down, and I think they'll slow down faster than what they said before uh, QE, which means they're going to buy less and less mortgage-backed securities and T-bonds on the free market. I think they're going to be much more hawkish on this. So, and eventually the the number will be zero, uh, quite soon. I think by within a few months they're going to. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to do that. So imagine a, 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 like the scenario where like QE is gone. There's no QE. They're not buying any. And the, the money supply is at 13%, which is normal. Like steady. The thing is, we still have uh, a $5.5 trillion or more at that point in the system that has to go through the system. It's like a poison, so to speak, that go that has to go through the body. That money has to be spent. And so, and so if that money has to be spent somehow yeah. and you haven't solved supply chain issues, it's going to persist with inflation. But if you can create more supply, which which would not cause price pressures, and you can create a situation where you encourage savings, so some of this money will go go away on on the shelf, then you can solve you can slow down this. So the only the only way you can stop people from spending this 5.5 trillion and there's going to be less competition for goods and services in the market if you increase supply and if you encourage savings but you can't encourage savings until you raise interest rates because and, and like a like a like a reasonable person would say well why would i want to put my money in the savings account right i'm getting 0% interest so you have to create that environment uh, in order to create a slowdown in 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 price instability i guess Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the counter arguments with the supply chain is it seems like the U.S. is taking the brunt of a lot of yep. the port the port issues. Right. Yep. Um, and it doesn't seem like if, if it was like all the countries, all the developed countries in the world were having port issues, you know, like all these boats, the yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, like light up, then I'd be like, oh, there is a global issue. But it seems like if it's a country specific issue perhaps yeah. this could be resolved. I'm, I don't know when, like we've been talking about this for a long time, you know, supply chain and ports, but it just seems like a little bit, I'm a bit more optimistic um, that, That's true. yeah, this can be resolved. Um, it seems like more of an anomaly. And then the flip side is like, if the Fed, you know, they don't have just interest rates, they have their balance sheet that they could, you know, run off. Yep. Um, and one of the- And they will. Yeah. They said they will. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the bigger kind of questions is, with all this is this whole like um when COVID hit and stocks got crushed the fed said we'll do basically unlimited qe we'll we'll be the 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 put we'll give the market you know um we'll save you a, uh, yeah well, a free put for everybody and you get a put and you get a put, you and you get a put. <laughs> exactly with the the fed flame floor of puts um yeah. and then it just turned on this risk on you know, switch for the markets where the market said, oh, we're just going to bet one direction because the Fed has our back. And now you've got this like, you know, switch off for the growth stocks, which is on risk off because we don't know how aggressive the Fed's going to be, what they're going to do, how high interest rates are going to go. And it seems like there's going to be a time when the switch maybe gets turned back on, maybe not super hyper boost like in COVID, but at least, you know, moderately back on, um, where the Fed perhaps, you know, um, maybe when, when it gets the scariest, you know, when people are the most, you know, um, scared about what the Fed's going to do or something, I don't know what, what can you picture, can you give us a picture of when you think all of this, like, you know, gets, gets priced in, 
you know, to the I point where- I love the way your brain yeah. works. I just, I, I could do this with you for hours. Your, uh, your yeah. brain works in a very different way than most people. But on this uh, last few minutes, I had to agree with you on every single point. In fact, I made a video which nobody watched because it was titled like something inflation, something geeky, so nobody wanted to watch this. Mm. But in my video, I specifically said what you said. This is not a global supply chain problem. This is a US problem with the US ports and the US distributions in the trucking industry. So the good news is it can be fixed if we can actually address the problems that we have instead of you know kicking the can down the road. So I completely agree with you. Yeah. Uh, finally, somebody you know sees eye to eye with me on this. It's this pure US situation. You'd be surprised how many people in the comments said, no, it's a global issue. So not we're in the minority here. So agree with you 100%. That's an accurate statement. And that's just good news. You know, uh, I think we, and you can really see the US kind of working through this as far as what's going on with used cars. It's getting better. And you can see like, what, you remember what happened with lumber? It's getting So the mm -hmm. things are getting, like supplies are getting better and better in the US. Uh, in fact, this was like a healthy exercise that almost pushed us to the brink. It's like, hey guys, you need to start watching what you eat. Otherwise, you might die. So then, like, okay, so we're getting into shape now, kind of as a society, right? Um, as far as like the the last part of what you said, it's like the J Cole song. I don't, you don't strike to me like a J Cole fan, but like he has a song, he has a song where he says it's always uh, darkest. Like it's not his quote, right? But it's always darkest before the dawn, right? The darkest point is right before the dawn. It's obviously not his. Um, I completely agree with you, and my evidence for this is quite simple, and everybody can check me. So if you go. And you look, you pull up the S&P 500 chart and you look at it from a six months increment, you will see craziness. But if you do a 10 or a 15 or a 20 year chart, you can always see the, the patterns that you said, euphoria, anger, depression, euphoria, anger, depression. And the trend line of the S&P 500 is always going up. So because the S&P 500 is essentially the US economy and it's always growing. So uh, ev eventually every cycle of um, depression in the stock market and fear ends up in a bull run. So if like, that's why, again, going back to Warren Buffett yeah. here, sorry to do this, but you know, the stock market is the perfect mechanism to transfer wealth from the patient to the, to the patient. As far as, um, and I, I, you know, Dave, I find it amusing. I was sitting a year ago and people were in my comment section saying, Tom, you're a dinosaur. Nobody cares about fundamentals. Value stocks are dead. Like it's all about the uh, growth stocks. And now the same exact people, identical people are like, Tom, you're an idiot. Everything is about value stocks. It's all about fundamental. Palantir PE is out of whack. It's like, it's so, you know, I get it. As far as like, when we're going to see a reversal of people yeah. saying, oh, look at all of these growth stocks. They're on the floor. Yeah. You can just pick up whatever you want. I think that uh, I'm just if I'm not a betting man, but if I was a betting man, I think another two or three months from mm -hmm. now is where yeah. I think it's going to hit because it's going to get so cheap. Yeah. And of course, you'll have like, you know, look at what happened with Peloton today. I don't know if you heard, but they're kind of halting production on some models. or They're basically falling apart, it seems like. So, uh -huh. by the way, another story of, you know, what a great product and what a just poorly run company. Anyways, yeah. so, and that was a huge bull on Peloton. So, I, I posted mm -hmm. today on my channel feed. I was like, I removed my Peloton video because I don't want anybody to get misled. 
let this be an evidence that I fucked up. Hello, <laughs> 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 and then uh, screenshot this, please. So, so I wanted everybody to see that I didn't delete it for you know for to hide my tracks or whatever. Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing right now is the selection. It's like the dot com bubble. They it clears out all the trash, mm-hmm. and the, the there's this emergence of the great, truly great companies out of the out of the ashes. Exactly mm-hmm. what happened with the in 2000, and I think exactly what's going to happen with. So Peloton is just the first. There's going to be a bunch of these, and I'm sure I won't get every single one right, but I'm goddamn sure about Palantir and Tesla. So yeah, I have yeah. no doubt in my mind. So, and by yeah. the way, I, I after our conversation yesterday, mm-hmm. uh, I went back and I checked. So. I can't show this because I don't know if the guy would agree or not, but I have a screenshot, like a video screenshot of, of a user of Foundry. And uh, he kind of walked me through this and he sent it to me. And uh, I, I think their system is brilliant. Uh, I think that um, what I'm seeing in Palantir, and, and again, we spoke about it yesterday, it lacks one critical element for it to go ballistic. You can't touch it, you can't feel it, you can't use the product. You can't have the Apple aha moment or the Tesla. But so the guy I was talking to works for a supplier that provides little parts of a of a six million part plane and they're on foundry because the airline is on foundry because Airbus is on foundry. And they're all in the same system using and enjoying it. So the ecosystem is insane. And I looked at the numbers from 2016 is when they launched Skywise. I call it just Foundry for airlines. So from 2016, you, the use, the, the amount of users just goes like parabolic right now. And he's telling me like we're actually making massive progress with our with our parts because of Foundry, and we're not even the client. We're just using it because the airline has them. Uh-huh. Um, so when I get and I had opposite moments. I'm not going to tell you which company, but I had like an opposite moment where I talked to a guy who I really appreciate and told me, hey, this ARC stock is, is, is the TAM is weak and the product is weak and blah, blah. And I know guys who work there, they're really nice guys, but this is not blah, blah. So I had opposite moments. So yeah. I, in my own mind, I already have my, my kind of confirmation bias starts to build up on even on the use side of Palantir. Mm-hmm. But as I told you yesterday, until they come out with something we can feel and touch, that ain't never going to happen. We have to see it. Got it. Um, okay. So uh, you're the guy I want to talk to regarding Palantir because um, you're walking the talk. You have over 40% of your portfolio in Palantir, your top position. Um, and yeah, I want to ask some uh, some questions here. The biggest, kind of, okay. So for those who don't know Palantir, um, they started out. This is going to um, be like the, the like, I don't want to, like there was a, this talk started on a different show and it didn't end well. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, Palantir has a, a government uh, kind of uh, platform called Gotham, and then they have an enterprise platform called Foundry. They do yep. um, data analysis, but it's much more that more than that. They're trying to become, in a sense, a business operating uh, platform, a software platform to basically almost try to run, you know, uh, make better business decisions, right? Based off of real-time data and using AI analysis to to basically even predict, you know, what would happen if you make this decision versus this decision. And, yep. and um, it's a, in a way, it's a revolutionary new approach um, to adding value to business. And Palantir is still just getting started, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, my kind of one question that keeps popping up is, if Palantir is such a big AI play, right? This is something that they they tout as one of their key 
expertise where they say we're really good at AI, right? At, at analyzing all this data, but yet they don't own the data, right? They're just coming in, providing the software for, for their clients, right? To analyze their data. But when you look at AI in the bigger picture, 10, 20 years down the road, it's like the, 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 the data is so valuable, you know, it's like without the data, it's like, you don't, AI can't do anything. And so it seems to me like, would, wouldn't the leverage always be with the company with the data? And then isn't Palantir kind of more this, I guess, I guess having minor leverage in the sense that what if there's a competitor and then the, the, the data company says, Hey, I'm going to go to a competitor because I have the data. Right. Yep. Without having the data, where where is the leverage that Palantir is going to have, you know, in the system? What's your kind of take on that? It's an excellent Dave Lee question that nobody has ever asked me before. <laughs> so as you accurately pointed out, Palantir is, is one legal entity, but they have two completely separate businesses that work on a completely different timeline. So Gotham, which is the government business, is is almost a two-decade-old business. Uh, it's a, it's a government uh, a, a software that does whatever it does. I don't even know. Uh, I don't know nothing about that. I see. So I'm bullish on Palantir because of the business they started in 2015, which is Foundry. So Foundry, which is where we have more transparency and more understanding of the system, is where I have the answers for what you just asked me. So it's it's it is kind of a startup. It's a six-year-old company. Um, and it's and I think it gets a lot of people confused because they say, well, it's a 17-year-old company and look at their okay, uh, it's a six-year-old business. So uh, as far as uh, what you just mentioned, when we talked about this on our podcast with Justin, I think we had such a blast with you. Um, I agree completely. But here's the thing, uh, and I'll also give you an extra bonus which you didn't ask, which is what the biggest risk I think legitimately is for Palantir, which nobody's talking about. Everybody don't understand the real risk. So Palantir has access to insane amounts of data. The fact that they don't own it doesn't really matter for, and I'll get to a question, that's not your question, but I'm just saying from an operational perspective, they don't lack amounts of data to develop their AI currently. Uh, and, and what they do, if, just to clarify for certain people, like in the, in the case of Skywise, which is one of the 40 something industries they service, it's the airline industry, they'll take stuff from completely unconnected uh, uh, silos and they'll connect them into one system. So for example, they'll pull data from an airplane that's in the sky right now and it's generating 2 million data points in a, in a couple of hours of flight. They'll pull data from the warehouse. They'll pull data from the scheduling system. They'll pull data from the garage or the hangar, whatever you want to call it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So from the, from the sales department and all of this gets thrown into one system that basically tells you uh, for example, hey, and I've seen these test cases. I'm talking about specific test cases which I've seen for airlines. Hey, uh, we noticed that uh, from previous cases that if you do a little minor uh, $2,000 repair that's going to take half an hour, uh, you won't need to overhaul this engine in six months and save yourself $45,000 on this air, air, uh, airline uh, maintenance fee plus the AOG time. AOG is death sentence for, for, for airlines. AOG means airplane on the ground. So AOG for even like if it's a 737 or Airbus A320, the whole idea is a bus. It has to be in motion. Every minute, they it's not like the A350 or the 
747. <laughs> it's not like the big jumbo planes. The smaller planes, they have to be in the air constantly. The margins are super thin. So AOGs is critical. So they'll tell you, hey, if we do this little repair and we can do it in 30 minutes while you board on board, you'll save yourself the AOG and the, the fees. And hundreds of thousands of dollars per plane over a period of time. I've, I've seen the, the test cases. I can show it to you privately later because I'm not sure that the guy who showed it to me was comfortable with me sharing or not. But it is public information at this point. Um, so the question that you asked, right, Friso, well, that's fine and dandy. And they there no competitors right now. They're pretty much nobody's doing something like that. And everything is great. But what prevents, if somebody comes up with a competing solution, what prevents the company saying, well, it's been nice knowing you. <laughs> get the you know get the bleep out and then they take their data with them and then basically they push out palantir um, and i'll tell you i think this is a really good question because it touches on what i think the biggest uh, potential threat to palantir is so the biggest potential threat for palantir is uh, is actually embedded in one of the most bullish thesis right now about palantir so people look at palantir and they would say oh there's no competitors let's go and I'm like, no, that's not a good thing because that means we still haven't seen what the system can do when there's actual big boys in the picture trying to compete. We haven't seen a Google or a Microsoft go at their neck yet. That's that's what I think the biggest question will be. Because when these guys say, well, we've seen that you can make money of this. Now we're going to come in and take your lunch, which is basically the business model for Microsoft right now at this point. <laughs> Ever since Bill Gates left, I mean, that's what they do. They, they They're trying to do this to Zoom now. I mean, they remember Slack and then we can Azure, like it's a lot of different examples. So uh, so basically the question is, can Palantir withstand a push from Microsoft with all of its network effects, sales, people, relationships, and ecosystem, they can pretty much loss leader you're out of a business. They can come into a company and basically say, hey, use our solution, which may not be as good, but we'll give it to you for free for four years. And they, you know, it's like the essential, uh, I'm just using a very extreme example, of course, that would be illegal. There's antitrust laws that prevent that. But essentially, like, you know, you open a, a little lemonade stand and then some, like somebody buys a, a food truck and they want to drive you out of business and then they just, you know, sell Coke for 50 cents or, or 25 cents just until you go bankrupt. So, um, so the big companies have, they can withstand, they can poach your employees, they can take uh, your best employees, pay them more. They can really go at your neck. They play hardball. They're not. It's not like competing with the uh, with with these medium-sized companies. So the only scenario where Palantir uh, withstands that and gets to keep a significant part of the market, which I don't think they'll keep holding 100% of it, there's going to be a nice division between two or three companies. The only way that Palantir stays kind of uh, like what happened with AWS and Azure, what or other examples when it's a split market, is if their solution is so much better, like 100x better than what the competitors have, so that their salespeople relationship with the CEOs don't matter anymore, and the credits that they give you don't matter anymore, because as a CEO, you know that if you won't use this industry standard that everybody's using, and you're going to use an inferior product, then eventually you're going to lose your job. So you're going to say, hey, guys, I really appreciate you and everything, but I have to get this because this is this is the shit, right? That's the only. It's if it's a 20% better software, it's not gonna it's not gonna cut it. Then they're gonna run you out of business. So that is why I think that 
people don't understand what's going on right now with Palantir. So Palantir is spending insane amounts of money and they're not profitable like from a tax perspective, even though operationally they are profitable for three months, for three quarters already. But I mean, but because of anyways, from a from a accounting perspective, they're only losing money. And and you mentioned this earlier. They're putting a lot of money into R&D. Remember when we made assumptions about so a lot of money goes into R&D, a lot of money goes into stock based comp. And people criticize them for these two points, basically saying, oh, look at the dilution. The stock-based comp is out of this world. And look at the expenses. They're not profitable. It's a clown company. And then I look at it and I say, well, this is the only thing they can do to try and put themselves in position to prep for that battle in a year or two or three, whenever it comes. Because there's a few things you have to do. First of all, you have to capture as much market share as you can to create an industry standard. Because if you can't get it done, this will not work. And the only way you can do it is just completely say, I don't care about profits. I just want to conquer as much industries as I can. So they're doing this with Skywise. I don't know if you heard, they just signed a deal with Hyundai for the shipping industry. And, and they're developing this the situation that they're kind of the operating system uh, of, of BI or whatever it is. I don't know. The other part, which they're trying to do, again, criticized for is the stock-based comp. Oh, the dilution. First of all, there's no dilution because, I mean, <laughs> nobody has looked at the documents, but the DPO documents uh, say 2 billion shares. So outstanding shares have not grown by one share in the past year. People uh, confuse float with outstanding shares. So nobody got diluted over the past year. But never mind. But still, 2 billion shares is a lot of shares, and a lot of them went to stock-based comp. And the reason they're going to stock-based comp is because they know that in a couple of years, whatever they have top 0.2% of their employees, the superstars, uh, companies like Microsoft and Google, which will try to take their lunch, will try to throw a fucking brink truck to them. Basically, hey, here's 5 million, come work for us. The only way you keep some of these is that if you gave them a piece of the business and a significant piece, and you can make the case, hey, this might be the next Amazon, and you just ha- got a big piece of it, not sure if you want to take the quick money now, you probably want to stay. And that's not going to work for every single employee, but I mean, it's going to work for, I think, a significant amount. So that's what I see them prepping for that event. And yet I see all the criticizers of Palantir not focusing on, like, there's a bigger issue here and they're missing it. They're looking at, oh, stock-based comp, not profitable, not scalable, which is nonsense. Uh, I have documents that show, like, the onboarding process for 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 Foundry. One to two weeks is uh, initial kind of interviews. Three to six weeks is onboarding. From six weeks and onwards, you go to support. You have the software and that's it. There's no human being with you there. Mm-hmm. So so that's the big that's the big question, Palantir. Can they withstand that that storm when it comes, when people come for their neck? Mm-hmm. That will be the biggest test for Palantir. I think they will. Uh-huh. But I don't I think it will be a I don't think it's going to be like a four-game sweep, four-zero. I think it's yeah. a seven-game series in basketball terms. Sure. Um, I mean, if we look at step back, like in the decade view or you know, ten, twenty-year view, it seems like AI is this huge, growing you know field. There's going to be some big, big winners in the field of AI. Um, if you had to choose between Tesla and Palantir, like, and this is just you know, kind of giving you... Why do you think they're mutually exclusive? Just well, a question. Well, I'm kind of... Because we have to... We have opportunity costs. We have a portfolio. We have to, you know, allocate no, but a saying, certain, certain amount, from, right, to... From an analyst perspective, Dave, let's yeah. say that... Not not stocks related, as companies. Yeah. 
you don't think they can they can coexist and, and because they do different types of AI? Oh no, no I, this is just a this is just a, a analogy for sake of trying to get you know okay. a, a, okay, a discussion I'll, I'll go going. So the, okay. the the point is, in the age of AI, why own a company that doesn't own the data, right? Like Palantir, when in with AI, the ownership of data seems like it's going to be so valuable. When when you can own a company like Tesla that is first growing faster than Palantir, right? you have a fifty yep. percent, you know, guidance over multi multi years. It has no. And I think they're going to be dead, by the way. Yeah, it's going to be have, faster than the guidance. Yeah. yeah, they have no marketing spend. You know, it's like crazy. Uh, what company out there, you know, is growing like that with no marketing did spend? Did you see my tweet about it? Uh, no, what, like what did huge, you say? I tweeted like all of uh, these uh, OEMs spend billions of dollars. Yeah. Uh, mainstream media is throwing everything and the kitchen sink at it. Yeah. Elon spends zero dollars, tweets once every few hours, gets more clout and PR than them for free. Zero effort. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like any other company will have to spend a lot on marketing, you know, but, but Tesla doesn't and they own all their data, right? Like they're not, you know, borrowing it. They, own, they had the whole stack and they, all this is leading to like more applications, more big markets like robots and perhaps AGI, yeah. labor, all this stuff. So why for you, yeah, why- Tesla bot is gonna be massive, bro. Yeah, yeah exactly. Insane. Yeah, insane. So why have 10% only in Tesla and 40 plus in Palantir when with the AI kind of decade ahead of us, you know, why not opt for ownership and high growth? So Dave, as I told you, like mm -hmm. I, the only two stocks I actively buy almost uh, all the time and for the past two months is Tesla and Palantir. So these two positions is the only ones I'm extending right now. So I'm a huge Tesla bull. The only reason why this is like 25% compared to the, to the to the big bet is what you mentioned earlier, opportunity cost. So I think like if Tesla goes to a $10 trillion company, right? which I think it may, and a lot of people call me crazy for this. They're like, oh, like, like my guy just chill. Like 10 years ago, like a, a $3 trillion company would have looked like a joke. We'll have that $3 trillion company. Don't worry about it. It's probably going to be Tesla. So they go to $10 trillion. So you made 10x on your money. That's insane. That's insane. And I'd love to have an exposure for that. But in my view, I think that I'm, I'm trying, I'm buying into the next Amazon in 15 years by you know but in 15 years this is the next amazon and i'm getting potentially in 15 20 years a three thousand dollar stock for 20 bucks so the, like you mentioned the opportunity cost is much cheaper with much higher upside now as far as the first and that's a subjective analysis everybody have their own and the, you can't debate that it's just you know you feel it or you don't now what you said earlier is a huge point but i think and this is just a i'll tell you what my thesis about this yeah ownership of data is huge However, if you can get access, access I think is more important if you can assure uh, client stickiness. If you can assure client stickiness, then ownership becomes irrelevant as, as long as they want to take the data with them. And so, and I think Palantir is working towards that. If like, imagine if they become the equivalent of, uh, I don't know, you have a Mac, I have a PC for, for a few more months and then I'm out, but let's say, let's talk about PCs, rip PCs for me, like uh, Windows, right? Mm -hmm. They don't own my data, but I can't do jack shit without 
sorry, without Windows. So if they become kind of the windows of the BI industry or or data management industry, then ownership doesn't really become a huge deal for them. Um, it's very different when you're providing an operating system, then data comes to you and what you don't chase data, vice versa. But um, we'll see what happens. You know, I might be wrong on this. I mean, it's not like we have a crystal ball. Like my dad used to say, yeah. like, uh, there's only three certain things in this world. One, you're going to die. Two, you're going to pay taxes. And three, grandpa's going to wake up on New Year's Eve in a dumpster. <laughs> Everything else is uncertain. It is what it is. And that's a true story. It actually happens every year, bro. <laughs> that's crazy, man. Um, you obviously never had a Russian grandpa. That's why yeah, you think yeah, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Um, hey, so I'm curious just on a, on a personal note. So, um, you know, you, you talk about Russia. Like, when did you come to the U.S.? When did you leave Russia? So I left in the, in the 90s, in the early 90s. There was a huge exodus mm-hmm. How old from Russia. Yeah. Uh, I was nine years old when I left. Oh, wow. Okay. So, but it really screwed with me. I'll tell you in a second yeah. why. So we left at the beginning of the worst time for Russia. So when we left, it was starting to crumble. And my mm-hmm. dad saw it and then we left. Remember when I told you about the things that I, like the hyperinflation in Russia? That happened a few years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that already, I saw it from the outside looking in. And I've been back to Russia multiple times before, even for extended periods of time. And I've been back before the 2000 change when Russia was still, you know, a completely in shambles. And I've seen kind of the new whatever it is now, which is a, a whole different, Russia right now is a whole different story. They have other problems, which we can't talk about, obviously, but it's pol- it's politics, but they have their problems. Uh, so, but like when I, because I, I came at a formative age, so, mm-hmm. and I've never thought about this up until a few days ago. I was speaking to a Ukrainian guy mm-hmm. and he's like, oh, wow, you have such a thick Russian, like bad Russian accent. I was like, oh, wow, I don't have any language, but I don't have an accent. Because <laughs> I have a thick English accent when I speak Russian and a thick Russian accent when I speak English. It's like, I'm the most weirdest person on earth. I don't have, an, I don't have any language where I sound like a normal human being. <laughs> so it's crazy, right? No, think about it, a human being with no like proper well, language that well actually, I know, I know actually quite a few people in your situation, like they come between... 10 and 15 years of age and but the benefit the the pro is you know both cultures so well like your mind and your values are are deeply entrenched in in both worlds that is a huge advantage i think because you can see things a little bit different than the typical mainstream person in just one culture so i actually i think yeah it's it's probably a huge advantage you know people freak out when like because i'm such a like a a football fan like proper football not soccer just mm-hmm. fake football. Like even for me, like I say fake football now. They freak out when I say it. It's like, what's uh-huh. wrong with you? It's like, so they freak out because like I I, the, I like all the, the culturally, I'm kind of in way more yeah. like into US stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they freak out because I sound like, I sound like a foreigner still. I'm 40 years old. I can't sound like proper. And I used to try to fight this. Like when I was a kid, I tried to fight this. And then uh, I realized I don't need to. So I just realized I can get laid without it. <laughs> When I was like 19 and 20, I was like, you know, fuck it. <laughs> I'm not going to try to sound uh-huh. more American than I am. And then I just completely yeah. gave up on trying to sound. Uh, yeah. And and uh, ever since then, the accent stayed. Uh, yeah. However, I will tell you something about mul- multiculturalism. 
it, sometimes I feel like I'm alone on this. So when I look at China right now and people criticize me for this, I see a lot of common characteristics of what I've seen in Russia in its darkest days. And I, it's like clear as day to me. And I, a lot of people tell me, well, Tom, you're a xenophobe, completely incorrect. I love Chinese culture. I love Chinese people. I think that like Taiwan is the perfect example of where China could have been if the communist assholes would not have taken over. I think the problem of the China is the CCP, not the Chinese people. And Taiwan is a prime example of what Chinese culture can do. A massive global economic hub, the, the capital of the semiconductor industry. And so I see that. And I think a lot of people, even in the US, the guys quote Charlie Munger. Well, Charlie Munger is investing in China. Warren Buffett is investing in China. And like, they just don't get it. If you haven't lived in communism, you don't understand how destructive it can be. To, it's, like a, it's like a time bomb. Communist regimes always, always end up imploding. It's inevit inevitable, and they take everything with them. Mm. Um, and I fear for for what will happen in China because you know Chinese people are hostages, just like my family was hostages by the communists. It's just kind of a sad situation. Yeah. Yeah. But it is what it is. Yeah. Um, so take me back to um, maybe briefly. So you come to? Do you go straight to the U.S. when you're nine years old? Yeah, we came to the U.S., but then we had to go back to Russia after a few years. Then we okay. came back. My father traveled a lot for work. Got it. But when I actually like came back permanently, permanently, and just uh, mm -hmm. spent like a long time in the U.S. was in 2008, when okay. just like I went to school, University of Michigan. Okay. And that's where I just, just I said, okay, I'm not doing this again. And then that's yeah. where I actually stayed. Like from there on, it was just. Because you know, school was yeah. uh, was uh, you can't really travel, and then yeah, I I, I and then uh, I got a job in New York City, and then what did you major in at uh, University of Michigan? Uh, I I went to law school. I didn't go to undergrad in the U.S. Oh, okay. I I, I came into the U.S. already with like a degree, so I didn't have I to see. go to undergrad. So I I came into graduate school, uh, and uh -huh. then I did I I did a, a law degree in Michigan. Got it. Uh, and then I did an LLM in taxation. Mm -hmm. And then I, uh, I got a job uh, at an investment bank and, and then that developed into another job there internally. And then eventually I went to work for one of the big four consulting firms. And I spent there for another six years working for uh, like transactional services, basically mm -hmm. diligence, you know, M&A advisory work, uh, market research, uh, company valuations, uh, stock-based stock comp structuring, stuff like that. Got it. And then when did you um, kind of get the idea to start a YouTube channel? Well, that's a good question. Again, do you ask me some of the coolest questions? Nobody have ever asked me this. So basically what happened is I, I went, you know, I got older and the mm. money started getting good and the job started getting better. So I worked, I don't know if you're familiar with how the structure of the big four consulting firms, I don't want to say which, yeah. but it's like there's four options, the PwC, KPMG, Y and Deloitte. I work for one of them. I'll tell you offline, which later. But the way it worked for my firm is that you start as an analyst, then you become senior uh, senior analyst, then you become a manager, senior manager, director, and then you can become a partner. So I just made director. And, and it means a whole different thing. It doesn't mean the director like in a public company. It's it just a, it's like a VP in a, in a, in a hedge fund, right? Um, the money was good, but then I just, I was like in, in after my mid-30s, and I have three kids and I realized, oh, I don't, I'm about to miss my kids grow. Huh. So I had already three kids. My youngest was already going to kindergarten. 
starting to go I'm missing everything so I wasn't home for weekdays I would come in they would go to sleep I'll just say good night and then the weekends work 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 you know how it is and then yeah. it was like a workaholic lifestyle and then I, I just realized I can't do this anymore I just feel like I'm going to miss everything I want to be like my dad who mm. you know I don't have like a, I didn't have that relationship but even though he's a great guy and I love him to death but I like I don't remember anything like we never went to do jack shit together basketball game like nothing like very few incidents so I'm going to be that guy and then I said okay I got to quit and when I said I got to quit I was like I I I can if if it if it comes to that I'll go flip burgers bro I honestly didn't give a shit and I made the decision and I was like um I just I'll do whatever I just don't want to do this anymore and if we have to sell the house and you know buy an RV or what I don't give a shit and then uh, as this happened fucking covid yeah. hit yeah and then my hobby channel started taking off like crazy i had a little hobby channel which i was doing for fun mm. making fucking trolling videos looking at the financial reports of dan bilzerian's weed company ignite i don't know if you ever heard about this company mm. <laughs> it's yeah. and it was such a joke of a company in my opinion don't sue uh-huh. me dan in my opinion it was a joke of a company and uh, i was basically looking at the financials looking as this guy spends more marketing like nobody's ever opened up his stuff because it's such a personality on instagram right everybody knows dan bilzerian like there and i was like this guy just spent like a whatever amount like 5x his sales on marketing <laughs> <laughs> just, what is this? And I was like going for the finish and people started watching this like, videos getting like hundreds of thousands of views like all of a sudden out of nowhere. Huh. So my channel ballooned from like a 3,000 subscribers to 100 within a few weeks. And wow. then uh, I, and then, you know, the, I, I said, well, I got I, I got curious. I was like, I might be able to do this, this hobby of mine and get paid for this. Wow. And then I started making like more mature videos that, and people seem to like those. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, everything, the rest is just kind of happened. And uh, I try to, I'm not the most perfect, honest guy. The only thing I, I said on my channel, I don't want to do is like, I'm not saint. I'm not this like, uh, I have my shortcomings and I can be sometimes an asshole, you know, Dave, you can, but I said, I'm not going to try to, to push products down people's throat. I don't have, Mm-hmm. discount coupons or courses or none of that shit bro i'll just gonna try and be like just me if people want to you know i'll just like do patreon or something like this nothing like beyond that yeah and and people seem to really fuck with that and appreciate that mm-hmm. and uh, they allow me to do something that i consider a hobby yeah and get paid for this more than i made as a as a fucking director in the big four company bro it's insane it's mm-hmm. it's i tell my wife i feel like i'm retired right now and i just yeah. do this for fun <laughs> I, yeah. I kid you not. This is the most fun I've had in, ever in my life as yeah. far as work. So how, how old are your three kids now? My youngest is four and a half. I have okay. a six and a half and a nine-year-old. Wow. This is going to be big for your kids just to have you around them more. Yeah. So the yeah. way we do this right now is uh-huh. the, 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 how we work this out yeah. is basically um, I, so I wake up, I work. I pick them up from school or she picks them up, but I'm home for a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. Then we do all the the afternoon stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, once they go to bed, I go to work and then I work all the way until midnight, 1, 1 a.m. Yeah. And then, and that's like, I work when they're asleep or in school. So that when they're home, I'm usually either there. Like I, for example, today I took my oldest to her dance class and then I'm hanging out with my, uh, the middle kid, uh, yeah. the, the, my middle daughter. It's, so I'm always there and that's, like 
bro, when I used to like come back once a week at 6 p.m., that would have been considered like early. Like my wife would say, come back early at six. And, like, and then I, I would, my boss uh-huh. would make me feel bad, bro. Like I was a slave. Even yeah. as a, even as a senior manager before I made director, like mm-hmm. I had this, like you know, when I decided I'm gonna quit, I've never told the story. Mm-hmm. It's actually very embarrassing. Mm-hmm. So it's really an obnoxious story. So I had tickets to take my family to a to a show, and then my wife was coming in with the kids, and I was supposed to meet them at the train station and hop on the train. And we're supposed to keep going, and I had a time perfectly, and I'm about to leave. And the partner who was uh, uh, the head of the of transaction services basically uh, tells me, hey, you can't leave. This is urgent. You have to get it out today. Says, Listen, I understand. I got like three little kids screaming on the train at my wife. I'm I'm going. Mm-hmm. She's like, if you're going, that's unacceptable. I said, well, you do you, do you I do me. And we had a huge fight and then I left. And I was sure I'm fired. Mm-hmm. So I come back the next day. And she, I, no, there's nothing. Like she, she doesn't tell me nothing. And then we go back to normal. But having that moment where I felt so small, you know what I mean? So canceled. Yeah. As a, like, I was like, I can't do this. That's when I decided I want to quit. I was, like, I was like, I'm almost 40 years old. I should not go through a, through a situation like this. Yeah. I mean, just you telling me, it just like, I could totally. Bro, I sat through the entire show. My wife didn't know. I was like, yeah. I, sh- I was sure I'm fired. Like, I, yeah. I couldn't sleep at night. I was, like, I was like, I shouldn't go through this because I took my kids to a fucking show, bro. Yeah, I mean, it's the whole feeling is like nothing. Your whole life doesn't matter. Nothing yep. about your family. It, it means zero to our company, you know. Um, yeah, well, they'll that's... say that it is. They'll just oh, we're family and we care, but they don't give a shit. Yeah, they're dysfunctional family at best. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I mean, I have kids right around that age. My kids are four and seven, and um, yeah, I feel like you. It's like a hobby. It's fun, and I feel retired too, and. I get to hang out with them all day whenever I want. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. And but you made the what allowed you to do this is uh, a dangerous and very brave bet that you made, pissing against the wind. But eventually the wind shifted and everybody got wet and you stayed dry, so to speak. Like in my in my crazy analogy world, I mean, your yeah. conviction and and you're betting on yourself and your analysis has brought you home. And I think that's, in, that's insane. That's such proof that you, the best thing you can do is bet in yourself. And sometimes you're going to lose, but if you keep betting on yourself, eventually you're going to win out. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Tom, man, it's been fascinating. It's been awesome getting to know you, uh, hearing your story. I want to uh, plug the Justin yeah. episode. So Justin, though, my partner, Yeah, we're going to have him next week. If you mm-hmm. guys missed that show, it's on you. Justin is the smartest person I know, apart from Dave, of course. You definitely don't want to miss that episode. This dude asks the best questions and thinks in a very similar way to you, actually, Dave. It's going to be fascinating. Yeah. Uh, Justin O coming on Monday, or at least I'm interviewing him uh, from Sense uh, Invest. Uh, great guy. Uh, great newsletter, YouTube channel. Uh, looking forward to it. Um, yeah, Tom, uh, I'm going to uh, link to your Twitter profile in the video description below, uh, your YouTube channel, anything else, anywhere else? By the way, do you have a lot of fake Dave Lees on Twitter? I have like a hundred of them running around. <laughs> on Twitter? Actually, no. Yeah. I used to have some, and then I reported. Actually, Twitter, if you report them yourself, they usually take it off very fast. I've, I've had like five or six. Yeah. I tried to get verified, so that doesn't matter anymore. Oh uh, yeah. But they, yeah. so they told me I'm not important enough. <laughs> <laughs> they, they said nope. <laughs> so I'm just trying to report them, but there's like a lot of them that keep popping up. 
Yeah. And I yeah. like you'd be surprised how many people fall for that. I get texts every yeah. day. Some some guy texted me as Tom Nash. He didn't know it was me. Yeah. And I I had to check because it looked so legit. I was like, wait, what's happening here? Yeah. <laughs> so they're re- getting it really good at faking. Yeah. Yes. To be careful. Um, some guy uh named Elon Musk DM me the other day. <laughs> <laughs> he's like hey i've got a great you know investment deal like can you send me your email and whatever all this stuff so i'm like hey elon are we gonna ever are we ever gonna do that interview together man what's up <laughs> and the guy like replies back and so hilarious man <laughs> it's, it's usually scammers from uh yeah. from third world countries uh, you um, know it's like it's the new scam but the one thing that yeah. concerns me dave is if I see something happen on on a high rate of occurrences, it means that it's working for them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They would have stopped yeah. if they wouldn't have been scamming people and, yeah. and getting a lot of money. And that's yeah. really yeah. all over. It's in Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. They all suffer from this bot uh, yeah. infestation. I yeah, I think um, also it's um, like, um, I'm similar to you in a sense where like, um, there's um, some people that like do, um, like a lot of these scammers, they say like, "Oh, I'm da- I'm David, I'm Tom Nash. I've got this special deal for you, right?" Yeah, I don't sell jack shit, and you don't yeah, sell jack shit. Yeah, exactly. So they know, but, yeah. but the 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 thing is, like, I don't have anything. Like, I'm not selling anything, <laughs> right? So it's like, if anyone contacts people, like from me, or at least from you know, from us, it's like yeah. we don't have anything. We're not selling yeah. anything. We don't have under the, like the cover. Yeah, my shit's for free, and yours is all free. Just yeah, I don't have anything. Videos, um, yeah. So yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, sometimes uh, I have this funny, this funny reply. I sometimes reply it when I'm in a good mood. Somebody mm-hmm. says, "Well, you don't do it, but I sometimes clickbait because I just enjoy the, the trolling." Yeah. But people, Tom, your video is a clickbait. Your content is good, but I, I'm unsubscribing from your content, uh, whatever, from your channel. Yeah. And I was, I know, like, okay. So what you're saying here is, let me get this straight. What you're saying here is that you watch a video of mine for free. And you want me to reduce the amount of revenue I have from ads for the video so it suits your emotional needs better. Understand? No problem. <laughs> and they always like they I, when they say this, they they I think a lot of people don't understand that like uh, as creators uh, we rely on this income. Like uh, CPM actually matters for me. Uh, and uh, so and the way. Um, the user experience on, 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 on YouTube is very quick. Like, I don't know how much YouTube you consume, yeah. but the amount of uh, attention you give to every single thumbnail is probably what, like one thousandth of a second. So unless yeah. something grabs you to stop and, and watch the video, uh, you, you're going to lose. It's an attention battle. And yeah. that's why like Jeremy wears these yellow vests and screams and everybody's trying to get attention in different ways so that people stop. Uh, yeah. Now, you have the privilege of not doing that because you don't care how much views you get on your video. <laughs> <laughs> so I wish I was there, yeah, yeah, yeah. but that would be awesome, bro. I would just yeah, do yeah. like educational titles. like. Uh, mm. But if you're trying to make a business from the viewership, which like yeah. most viewers are, or sorry, creators are, then, you know, uh, click enticing titles and thumbnails is part of the game. And I understand why some people get, get upset by that. But I mean, just yeah. part of the game. It's just the algorithm it really favors click-through rate. It is what it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. YouTube is a, YouTube is such an interesting place. I mean, yeah. You did so. your videos when you had like zero views and you couldn't care less. You don't care more now than you ever did. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> actually, sometimes I tell my wife, I'm like, I wonder if I should sabotage things and go back to like more like <laughs> five or ten thousand views per 
per per video because I could be more free and relaxed. Yeah. Like I don't have to worry about like making it short and I don't have to like have the pressure of yeah. like keeping up. There's like I don't know pros and cons definitely, but um, you can do I, a second channel by the way. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually thankful though. I think YouTube, you know, it has some downsides, but the pro of the reach and the way they're at, they're able yeah. to just magnify, you know, a video and it's just amazing. Um, yeah, there's nothing like we're it, getting more views combined. Yeah, like between you, me, uh, SMR, and Rob, we're getting more views than CNBC on Tesla content, mm. exponentially more. Sure. So sure. YouTube yeah. is beating out uh, broadcast. Yeah, especially if you do like vi the watch time per minute, like for minutes. Yeah. Like for example, I did a recent interview just with Gene Munster, and he's on CNBC a lot. And so I'm like, I emailed him a few days after. I'm like, hey, our interview got 1.3 million watch minutes, right? And he's like, whoa, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like 1.3 million. Like that would be like on CNBC, you do a one minute interview, you'd have to have 1.3 million people watch it, you know, um, which is incredible. Which I don't even. Yeah, or I'm they're lucky sure. if they get like 20,000 views per video, 30,000 yeah. views. Uh, yeah, Jin, Jin, by the way, is a smart guy. I like his stuff a lot. Smart guy. Yeah. 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 Um, I saw him take apart Gordon Johnson a few days ago on an old <laughs> clip, and I was like, I can watch this a few times. Yeah. <laughs> Jin is such a laid-back guy. He never gets upset, so he always picks him apart. Like, you know, like in the in the old Kung Fu movies when the master doesn't even break a sweat, it's like... And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Thomas and fun. I feel like I could uh, hang out with yeah, you for yeah. hours with the beer and just like talk all this stuff, but maybe we'll continue on another time. Uh, thanks again for everything, and um, yeah, we'll see you. Thank you, again. Dave. This has all been right. a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Cool. All right, see it.